following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? You doing well? All right, well, we haven't gotten to Malachi yet, so <laughs> might change. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day, and I'm really grateful that you would take time to be with us. If you are new uh, and maybe looking to get connected, or maybe you just uh, want to let us know that you're here for the first or second time, uh, there's a gray and blue connect card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out at any point during the gathering. Just let us know that you're here. Uh, you can also go to our website, mdcashville.org connect and uh, do it digitally, but I'm um, really thankful that you are here, and uh, we'd love to be able to pray for you, help you get connected, give, give you more info about the church, that kind of thing. We're not going to spam you, but uh, we would like to know you. So you can put them in the black boxes in the back on your way out. Uh, if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it to Malachi chapter 2 um, or 3. We're going to be in both. If you don't know where Malachi is, uh, find the Gospel of Matthew and take a left, uh, or you can go to your table of contents. There's no shame in that. Scriptures will also be on the screen here, but um, I would love for you to have a copy of the Word in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat backs, or not in the seat backs, but in the little, whatever is it, tray? What do you call that? Little rack uh, in the bottom of the chair. You can grab one of those. So we're in Malachi, uh, which is the last book of the Old Testament, last prophecy um, in your Old Testament before the coming of Jesus Christ. And the book of Malachi has been a little heavy, hasn't it? Uh, without context, you, you listen to Malachi, and Malachi kind of reads like a grumpy old man shaking his fist at everybody for walking on his lawn. Uh, he just, there's, a, there's a tension there. It's, it's, it's hard words. But when we look closely at the book of Malachi, what we see is that God is speaking to his people as a father to his children. He even starts the book with, I have loved you. And so everything that he wants to say to us, these hard words, but good words, in the book of Malachi are all couched in his love. I love you, and because I love you, I have some difficult things to say to you for course correction. Uh, so he starts with, I love you, and then there's some very harsh, not harsh, hard, corrective language. He points out where the people of God have gone astray. And he's because he's motivated by love, he's essentially said to the people, look, I know what's best for you. I want what's best for you. But I have a responsibility to address where you've gone sideways. And because he's God, he knows the heart of every person. And so God will presuppose the attitudes, the questions uh, that the people of God have in this sort of hypothetical dialogues. That's what we've seen so far in the book of Malachi, is that either they will have an accusation or a question, um, which is, and then he responds to it, or he will have something that he wants to address, and then they respond to it. But it's all sort of hypothetical dialogue because he knows the heart, and he's going, I'm going to say this, I know what you're going to say, but here's my response, okay? Here are the main things that, they've, that God has addressed with them so far. They're not taking God seriously. They're not honoring him. They're not worshiping God the way that he has required for them to worship him. They are not faithful to God, not faithful to his word, and not faithful to one another. Now today, we hit the, really, I think, what is the crux of the book, and we see what 
Malachi's entire prophecy is really all about. And in, in a word, it's this, trust. Do we trust the Lord? When push comes to shove, is Jesus worthy of our trust? That's what we're going to see uh, that, that it's all about this morning here. So I want to pick up where we left off last week, which is in chapter 2, verse 17. And then I'm going to read down to uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. And we're going to cover those verses this morning. And then we'll round out the book next week. But if you have your Bible in front of you, uh, digital, analog, whatever, follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2 of Malachi. Here's what the, Lord, the word of the Lord says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Already not off to a good start. (laughs) But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in thanksgiving uh, that we belong to you. Uh, that for those of us who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, that we have the right to be called the children of God. And uh, it is, that is an immense privilege that we do not take lightly. Um, yet this morning, Lord, we are open to have you challenge us, to have you rebuke us, to have you correct us in love because you are a father who loves his children. And so give us a posture of humility, of openness to hear from you, uh, to respond in faith, in repentance, uh, and in willingness to, to hear and observe the correction that you call us to. And I pray, Lord, that more than anything, we would become a people 
who learn to trust you with everything. So help us now. Help me, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill me and empower me to rightly divide this word for your people that they might hear from you. And um, Lord, that you would do what only you can do in our hearts this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You have wearied the Lord with your words. My goodness. The Lord basically to his people is saying, you all are wearing me out. And they're like, how? And he goes, I'm tired of all your cynical complaints. Basically, the people of God at this point are accusing God of being absent or inept or just unjust. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Um, when you find that your life is not where you want it to be, right? I'm, I'm 30 and I should be married by now. I'm 35 and I'm divorced and I didn't anticipate this. Um, I still don't have the job in the field that I want. My family life is a complete nightmare. And it shouldn't, I want, I expected things to be better. I expected things to be in a different place than they are. Where are you, God? What are you up to? Are you absent? Do you even care? Are you unable to change these things? See, this is the, the heart of the people of God here. They're saying, okay, yes, we're back in Jerusalem. Remember, they had, they had come back to their, the land they were promised. Yes, the temple is rebuilt, although it's smaller than it originally was. And okay, no, we're not taking you seriously. And no, we're, we're not bringing the offerings that you require. And no, we're not treating you or each other with the honor that is required of us. But you're not making us thrive. We're supposed to be your people. We're supposed to be the good guys. But the wicked are prospering, not us. Their armies are growing, not ours. They seem to be blessed, not us. What is going on? And so what God is trying to help the people see here, and if you're a note taker, you can write this down. There's, there's three things they're going to be learning today. The first one is this, learning to trust the providence of God. Providence being um, God's involvement with his creation, right? That he is active, that he is involved, that he sees, that he, um, he, he moves in the world to bring about his purposes for his glory and for the good of his people. He's wanting them to trust in his providence. Do you, do you feel the arrogance of these people, right? We're not where we're supposed to be, even though we're not giving you what you require, but you, sh you owe us blessing. That's, a, that's really what they're saying. Now, here's the, here's the thing we've learned in Malachi so far. God is father, master, king, and judge. And yet the people of God are putting him on trial. It reminds me of, um, of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11. When he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the beauty and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. In other words, the judgments of God, the decisions that he makes, the, the, there's nothing, there's no fault you can find with them. They're unsearchable. Uh, his ways are beyond scrutiny because he is perfect in all of his ways. 
Even Paul goes on to say, um, uh, who has ever been the Lord's counselor? Like, who has ever given counsel or advice to God? Like, like, there's never been a scenario where any of us have ever been like, hey, God, hold on, time out. I see what you're doing, but have you ever thought about doing this? Because I'm just, just let me, I'm spitballing here. What if you tried doing it this way and to have God go, well, holy me. <laughs> do you know what would have happened if I had done what I was going to do? I'm so glad you said something, right? No one has ever done that. So there's this, there's this arrogance about, well, I know how my life is supposed to be, and it's not that way, so I don't know if I can trust you anymore, God. Here's the reality. The God of the Bible is the only wise, just, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority, both now and forever. Amen. And so this is about the heart of the people. God's trying to get them to understand, okay, maybe you're not where you expected to be, but you're right where I want you to be. For my purposes in your life, I have a plan. I care for you. I'm doing something that you don't quite understand. And if you will trust me, it will all make sense in the end. I hope you understand today that no matter where you find yourself, no matter what circumstance you are going through, no matter how confusing life may seem to you right now, if, you're in, if you are not where you expected you would be, you can trust him. You can trust God's providence. That he is, he is not absent. He is not inept. He's certainly not unjust. But he sees. He cares. He is actively involved, and he will move for his glory and your good. But you've got to trust him. You've got to learn to trust him. And the people of God did not trust him. And so all they would do is bring these complaints. They were leveling complaints against him. Are you going to do something? Remember, they're, they're back in their homeland, but they're a small remnant of who, of who they were before. They don't have an army. Their temple is, you know, not what it what once was. And all these wicked enemy nations around them seem to be blessed and prosperous. And they see themselves as the good guys and all those people as the bad guys. And they're like, God, are you going to do something because the bad guys are thriving and we're not? Are you going to do something? And God says, yeah, I'm going to do something. But listen, if I, and we'll see this in the next point, but like if I came now, nobody would be able to stand because y'all aren't the good guys. But he says, before I come, I send my messenger to prepare hearts. Did you see that in the text? Behold, I send my messenger, chapter three, verse one, and he will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Okay. He's actually referencing the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 here, which at, even at this time uh, was a well-known messianic prophecy. It's a well-known promise of the future one to come who would bring salvation and healing uh, and restoration. And uh, it's all, all four gospel accounts actually um, confirm that this messenger was John the Baptist. In Advent, 
we are celebrating the fact that, that he did come. That God, in Jesus Christ, came at just the right time. And did you see here when he says, uh, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple? There's been some debate over the years as to what that really means, what that's all about. But it, it, it at least means this. There's this beautiful story in chapter 2 of, of Luke's gospel where uh, there's this old, old man named Simeon who has walked with God for a long time. The Bible actually says that he's full of the Holy Spirit, which is sort of an unusual phrase for that time uh, because Pentecost hadn't happened yet and the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on everyone. But Simeon was full of the Spirit. And Simeon is in the temple. He's devoted his life to God. He's worshiping. And uh, and here comes this young couple, Mary and Joseph, with their eight-day-old infant, and they're bringing him to the temple to make sacrifice. They're going to bring two little doves because they don't have uh, a lamb to sacrifice, and they're going to have him circumcised according to the rituals and all that. But they're dedicating their child at the temple. And Simeon, who's full of the Spirit, uh, he catches a glimpse of the infant Jesus, and the Spirit confirms to him in that moment that Malachi 3.1 is being realized, that the Lord has suddenly come into his temple, that the consolation of Israel has arrived in this little, tiny, helpless human child. The Bible will go on to tell us that that Christ came as both the just and the justifier of those who place their faith and trust in him alone. That's Romans 3. He is just. He is active. He is involved. He is aware of your situations and circumstances. And if you will learn to trust his providence you will be the better for it. This is what God is trying to get his people to see, trusting, learning to trust in his providence. But secondly, I want you to see that they are learning to trust. God is getting his people to learn to trust the purification of the Lord. I'll explain that in a second, but if you're a note taker, you can write down learning to trust the purification of God. Look with me at verse 2. You with me so far? Okay. Chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord because it isn't pleasing now, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So he wants them to learn to trust in his purification. Here's what I mean by that. So they're like, God, are you going to come? And he's like, yes, I'm coming. And they go, okay, when? He goes, well, I'm coming with fire. And they're like, yes, fire. Okay. And then they're like, what else? And he's like, soap. And they're like, okay. And then And then he goes, and I'm going to purify the sons of Levi. And they're like, whoa, time out. 
essentially God's saying to them, are you sure you really want justice or do you want mercy for you? (laughs) They didn't expect that because they thought they were the good guys. Like, we, we want justice for them, not us. And God essentially has to say to them, well, judgment begins with the household of God. And so he starts with the priests. We learned about the priests last week. Um, the priests were not only in charge of bringing the sacrifices before the Lord and offering prayers and petitions for the people, but they were in charge of teaching the word of God to the people. And because they were not taking God seriously and were not taking his word seriously, they were not teaching the people rightly. And so the people were kind of just getting away with whatever they wanted to do, however they wanted to relate to God, whatever offerings they wanted to bring to God were okay with the priests. And God had some harsh words for the priests last week about that. So he starts with them. And then he goes on to the people. And he says, okay, here's how this is going to go down. Not only am I the judge, I'm also the prosecutor. And not only am I the prosecutor, I'm going to call to the stand as a star witness myself. And the people had to, at that point, just kind of swallow hard, right? Because they knew what he knew, which was that they're not the good guys. In fact, they were living just like the rest of the world. That's why in verse 5, when he says, I'm going to come near to you for judgment, he's talking to them. I'm going to bring judgment against, he says, sorcery, adultery, lying, oppression. These are all forms of manipulation. Sorcery being, you know, saying the right words in order to manipulate God. Okay? Adultery, manipulating, taking advantage of one another, lying to manipulate, oppressing people, kind of um, uh, ignoring the widow and the fatherless. These are all forms of, of manipulation. And the people of God were guilty of every single one of these things, even though, even though they were coming to church on Sunday, so to speak. They weren't the good guys. And the bottom line of all of it is that they did not fear or respect the Lord. He says, you have totally disconnected your spiritual life from the rest of your life, and I can't stand it. I wonder how many of us at times are guilty of separating our spiritual life from our normal life, right? Like we have a community group Sunday morning kind of life, and then we have everything else. And those two things don't often interact. We, we compartmentalize our lives. And so the way I am at work or the way I am with my uh, friends or the way I am at the gym is not how I would be here. We're, 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 we're different people in different environments. He says you, 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 can't, you can't do that. You shouldn't disconnect your spiritual life from the rest of your life. And, and you are, on the one hand, saying that you worship the God who is against these things, and then you're doing them. And because I love you, I won't tolerate it. And in fact, he says, actually, your attitudes and your actions are actually worthy of divine judgment. He says, you, you should be consumed because of what you do and how you act and and the thoughts you have. But, but he says, I've made a promise. And because I'm God, I don't change, which means I keep my promises. 
so you will not be consumed. Did you see that at the end of verse 6? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, therefore, you are not consumed. You should be consumed, but you won't be. Because I'm a God, I'm the only God, and I don't change. Isn't that good news? I, the Lord, do not change. Like, praise God for that. This is another theological concept. We, talk, we, we call it the immutability of God. Uh, immutability meaning that he is um, unchanging in his character. He is unchanging in his promises. He's unchanging in his will. So you can always count on God because he does not change. He doesn't make you a promise and then pull it back. He doesn't say one thing and do another. He is always consistent. This, this is good news because this means God can never get better because he's perfect. It also means God can't get worse because then he would cease to be God. He is, listen, he is perfect and unchanging in knowledge, in power, in goodness, in sovereignty, in holiness, in beauty, in justice, in truthfulness, in patience, in mercy, and in love. But when we choose to disobey him, when we choose to rebel against him, when we choose to go our own way and disregard him, that is worthy of of being consumed. That's worthy of divine judgment. And yet, because we belong to him, we only endure purifying discipline that is meant for our good. He says here in in the text... That, that um, he will, it's going to be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. That may not make a lot of sense, but let's just think through this. Um, a refiner's fire, as you probably know, uh, metals like silver and gold would be purified. They would be, um, still are, right, heated to a very, very, very high heat so that all the impurities sort of float to the surface and then they can be skimmed off. It's called the dross. And the way that it would work is that they would, they would just continue to have it on that fire until all those impurities were, were, had been skimmed off the surface and the refiner could see his own reflection in the silver or the gold. When you could see your own reflection, almost a mirror-like finish, then you knew it had been purified completely. Then he talks about a fuller soap, which probably all of us when we read it are like, okay, whatever that is. And here's the reality. Um, washing clothes a long time ago, even not that long ago, was way harder than it is now. Right now, you just throw your clothes in the laundry and throw a little soap in there and push the button and presto, 15, 20 minutes later, they're clean. But at least in this time, um, they had a, uh, a, a detergent that had a lot of lye in it. And... Um, and they would literally beat, they would wash them with this, you know, high lie uh, detergent and then beat clothes against rocks to get them, to get the dirt and the, impure, and the, and the stuff out of them, right? Um, you know, even old school, like, well, top, top load washing machines have an agitator in them, if you've ever seen that. And um, you don't realize when your clothes are in the washer, like, how much abuse they take. 
in the washing machine, right, to get them clean, right, because we just push a button. And so a lot of pressure, right, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, not toxic but sort of caustic stuff and a lot of pressure in order to cleanse or to purify these clothes. And so he's, he's saying, look, fire and soap, difficulty purifies, pressure cleanses. Makes me think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Well, how do we become pure in heart? Through trial and difficulty and pressure and hardship and fire. So let me clarify. Not all trials and challenges are because of our own sin or failure to honor God. Sometimes trials and challenges and hardships we go through are simply a result of the broken world that we live in, right? Sin has entered the world, and things are just hard, okay, for all of us. But when we find ourselves in the fire, so to speak, or when we find ourselves feeling the sting of the fuller soap, we can know that we are only being purified because Christ was consumed for us. That, that when he came, though he was perfect in every way, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, when Jesus went to the cross, he endured the judgment of God for our sin, that he was consumed, that, that he took that just judgment on himself, on himself so that when you and I face these challenges, we are only being purified. It's almost as if, um, as part of our sanctification process, uh, God is laying us on his anvil. And so if you've ever watched metal workers, you know, they'll put the piece of metal into the fire until it glows, and then they'll put it on the anvil, and then they'll beat the snot out of it with a hammer to shape it. And that's what God does with us. We're in the refiner's fire. He pulls out... And, and learning to trust in the purification of God is staying on the anvil until the Lord's work is done. That's what it means to trust in the purifying work of God for us. To understand that when I feel like I'm in that refiner's fire, it is not God punishing me, it is God's desire to bless me. To to strip away from me everything that is not him. Every false motive, every idolatrous thought, everything I cling to that isn't him in this world, his desire is to strip it all away so that I become more like him, so that he sees his reflection in me. And that's a good thing, but it's painful. Learning to trust in the purification of God. All right. Last one here. You guys with me? I'll give you the point and then we'll talk about it. The last point here is learning to trust in the provision of God. So the difference in providence and provision, although they sound similar, but I call this one learning to trust in the provision of God. Let's look at verse 7, second half of verse 7. Return to me... And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is really the, the thrust of the whole book right here. Return to me. God wants your heart. Return to me. Come back to me. 
But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All right, God is saying to them, Come back to me. Return. The word there can also be translated as repent. Repent, return, come back to me. How, they say. Stop robbing me, says God. And they go, what? (laughs) So this is all about money? I knew it. Some of you right now are going, I knew it. See, churches are all about money. And I just want to say, if that was true, would I drive a Toyota Camry? (laughs) If that was true, Would I be standing on a temporary stage in a rinky-dink fellowship hall of a rented Baptist church with uh, flooring from Shoney's in 1989 (laughs) and chandeliers from your grandma's house? Some of you are like, I'm a grandma, and I like that chandelier. My apologies. (laughs) (sighs) Here's what I find fascinating. Jesus says... Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And as we've seen in the book of Malachi, God is after the heart. And the people of God in the book of Malachi did not trust in God's provision for them. Uh, The tithe originates in Genesis chapter 14. Abram comes in contact with this priest named Melchizedek. And he gives the priest 10%, that's what tithe means, a tenth, a 10% of everything he has, okay? Financial, produce, livestock, all of it, 10% to the high priest. Later, it becomes part of the Mosaic law, okay? And so the people of God in the Old Testament uh, were required under the law to give 10% of all of their resources to the temple, Uh, To the point where, uh, in the book of Leviticus, uh, the Lord says that the tithe is the Lord's. So you never see tithing as a gift or an offering. Those are different because the tithe is required in the Old Testament. That's why he says they're robbing him. Because it was owed to him. It was due to him. God says, I have provided everything to you. And to show that you trust me, I require that you give me back 10%. You keep 90, I mean, that's a miracle, right? Like the fact that he lets us keep 90 is amazing. And so he goes, hey, to show me you trust me, give me 10, you keep the 90. And tithing for the people of God in the Old Testament was a way of of saying to God, we trust you to provide for 100% of our needs with 90% of our resources. But they didn't. They didn't trust that if they were obedient to God in the tithe, that he would provide for them. I wonder how you feel about that. Some of you might say, well, that was, I mean, that was the Old Testament. 
you know? Like, we're New Testament believers now. The tithe isn't required in the New Testament, is it? And I find that question fascinating because no one has ever asked me that question who wanted to give more. (laughs) And I will tell you, you cannot make a biblical case for a requirement of the tithe from the New Testament. What is required in the New Testament? Your whole life. Everything, right? Um, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So God, because he wants your heart, he wants all of you. So there's not a 10% requirement in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, but let me say this. If 10% was required under the law, how under grace can we justify anything less? Jesus talks about money and possessions a lot. Like, ironically, a full 10% of all the Gospels. He tithed the Gospels to talk about money, okay? Um, It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 11 to 15 of the 39 parables talk about money and possessions. Jesus talked about money and possessions almost more than he talked about anything else. The only thing he talked about more is hell, Okay, why would Jesus talk so much about money and possessions? Because he knew that money and possessions are an indicator of the heart. And Jesus wants your heart. There are some people who find their identity, their self-worth, in money and possessions. Some people find their comfort in money and possessions. Some people find security in money and possessions. And you know what? You don't have to have money to feel that way. Right? You don't have to have money to feel secure with money, which is why you feel insecure, because you don't have any money. But the idolater's heart is still the same, you see. And so God is saying, listen, if you will trust me with your finances, I will provide for every need you have. Now let me clarify something. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, okay? Or to put it in modern language, God owns Airbnbs in a thousand cities, okay? He doesn't need your money. The church is not a GoFundMe for the kingdom of God, okay? God is not sweating bullets, waiting to see what percentage of your measly paycheck you're going to give to him so that he can get on with kingdom work. But you need to give in order to learn how to trust the Lord's provision. The question that you should be wrestling with is, is do I trust that God can do more in my life with 90%? Because I, I still believe a tithe is a good place to start as a believer. As a, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, a tithe is a good place to start. Okay? Now, I know that not all of you are in a position where you can do that. Some of you have massive debt, and I'm not saying that you should default on debt in order to tithe to the Lord. I'm saying figure out a way to get out of debt and then be generous with what God has entrusted to you. Okay? But I think as a principle, it's a good place to start. The question is, do I trust that God can do more in my life with 90% than I could do with 100? Is he a better provider? 
is he worthy of my trust with financial matters? And sadly, unequivocally, in the evangelical church in America, the answer must be no. Because study after study after study, and actually it continues to drop year by year, um, only 5% of American churchgoers actually give a full tithe of their income. The average churchgoer in America gives only 2.5% of their income. Now again, this isn't so much about money as much as it is about our trust in the Lord's provision. Um, there's a legend I heard, I don't know if it's true, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it, uh, about crusaders in the Middle Ages, that, that some of them, when they would be baptized, um, they, would, they would have their sword in hand, and they would be baptized, submerged in water, and they would hold their sword above water, as if to say, I belong to Jesus, but my sword doesn't, so I can still kill people. And it seems to me that for a lot of us, we're baptized with our wallet in the air. And God is asking us why he is not worthy of trusting him with our finances. Now, if you're new around here, I'm, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into giving money. In fact, let me just tell you this. Um, we're doing great. Um, our budget goal for this year coming out of COVID was... I think $582,000. And as of last Thursday, uh, we've received $622,000 in revenue. And by God's grace, we've underspent. And so we're somewhere around fifty dollars to $60,000 ahead uh, this year. And we give God praise for that. And I thank you who are generous and, and who do contribute to the work of God through this church um, we've only had one year in 14 where we've ever finished in the red, right? We've always finished ahead. Uh, and so that's a testament to the generosity of, of the majority of you that you do give. You give regularly and faithfully and joyfully and sacrificially, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. So this isn't like I didn't schedule this so we could talk about money before the end of the year. That's not how we do things around here. It's just in the text, and so I have to address it. Um, but I do think many of you need to wrestle with that idea. Um, do I trust the Lord financially? Is he worthy of saying, you know what? Um, maybe I can't give a full 10%. Maybe I can. Because here's the thing. When you decide to give like that, it means you have to say no to some stuff. It, it's sacrificial. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but if you decide to give to the work of God, you might have to get rid of one of your 15 streaming subscriptions. You might have to go to Starbucks like a dozen less times a week. One less six-pack of craft beer for $15. Like, you know, just saying, there, there are things, there's choices we make. And we say, I could do this, but I want to give to the work of God. I want to be generous towards the work of God because I believe in the kingdom of God and I want to see it advance. Now, last thing before we wrap up, because I don't know how much time I've taken, but it's too much. How do we learn to trust in the Lord? Like this. Look at verse 10. He gives us the answer. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse 
that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. This is the only place in all of Scripture that I'm aware of where God says, test me. Usually that's not a good idea. But God actually says, I want you to try me here. I want you to test me. And in fact, there's a promise. He says, will I not open the windows of heaven and pour down blessings? This is God, in other words, saying to you and me, I dare you to try to outgive me. There's a promise of his provision. There's a promise of his protection. Now the question becomes, is this purely material, right? If I give to God, he gives me back, and then I can go buy that new car. No, not necessarily, okay? There are all kinds of theologies that are built out of scriptures like this, that say, if you sow your financial seed, then God's going to re- return it tenfold, and you're going to be blessed and, and wealthy and all this stuff. Side note, this is funny. We used to meet in a different building. There was another church that met in that building, and they were a little bit more, a lot more uh, prosperity-oriented. And um, from what I could tell, a, a pretty low financial income uh, church, but the pastor drove an Escalade, and they had a license plate on the front that said, riding in the overflow, which is funny, but also atrocious. So there are these theologies that are built that say, if you give, God's going to give back. And while there's a partial truth to it, the prosperity gospel that says it's just about financial you know, prosperity in this life is false, wrong, dangerous, anathema, I hate it, Blech. it's disgusting to Jesus and should be disgusting to us as well. But there is still a principle in the scriptures where God says, if you are motivated by the gospel and you give, I will give. So just to, to show you that this carries over into the New Testament, um, it won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read for you a portion of scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 8 and 9 are both about the generosity of the church, uh, particularly these Macedonians who are poor and gave out of their poverty. So I know, I know a lot of you think like, oh, I would give if I had money, but I don't. Um, as if this is like, I have to be wealthy in order to give. But the Macedonians gave out of their poverty, see? This isn't like the Bill Gates giving challenge or pledge, you know? Like all the world's billionaires give half of their net worth, which is awesome, but also... If, if Bill Gates gave half of his income away, his net worth away, he'd still have like $500 million, maybe more. And some of you are like, I just don't know how you live on that, especially with gas prices, what they are. But so, so here's what he says. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, because he doesn't trust the Lord, that's my word, not the Bible's, will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So it's about the heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So we see spiritual blessing here. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see the parallels between Malachi 3 and 2 Corinthians 9? That you're not giving just to get back for yourself, but in your giving, the nations see and are delighted. There are others who, who are benefit from it, and they give thanks to God for your generosity. So it is a gospel-motivated heart. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, might become rich in him. That, that, that Christ came and, and gave up the eternal riches of the kingdom of God to take on our frail, poor, weak humanity. And he lived a life we couldn't, and he died a death we deserve. And, and, and because of that, we now, in Christ, are co-inheritors of the eternal riches of the kingdom of God. So you're rich. You are all rich, okay, in Christ. And he gives us resources on this earth to steward, but it all belongs to him. It's all his. And he says, will you trust me? Will you trust me with this portion that is given to the work of the kingdom of God, giving regularly, generously, sacrificially, joyfully, so that, so that there will be a land of delight, so that others will give thanksgiving to God. And it strikes me, isn't God a God of doing something from not much? Like, like he sent Christ as this helpless little innocent baby, and he turned the world upside down. He had five loaves and two fishes, and he fed thousands you know, he had 12 disciples and then 11 and then 12 again and, and the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. And he takes your 10% and your 10% and your 10% and your 10% and he multiplies those efforts through the church so that disciples are made, matured and multiplied both here in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God and he does more with your 90 in your life. He makes you more fruitful with that than you could ever be with your 100 but the question is, will you trust him enough to put him to the test? So I got two questions. I'll throw up on the screen and then we'll be done. And here's the first one. Is the Lord worthy of my trust? Okay, so again, some of you might be finding yourself in a place you didn't expect you would be. Right? This is not how I thought my life was going to go in this season. This is not where I thought I would be. This is not what I expected or anticipated, and I'm not sure if I can trust the Lord. And he's asking you, am I worthy of trust? Some of you are in that crucible. You're being refined. It is painful. And he's saying to you, am I worthy of your trust? Some of you are just in that place where you're like, I've never even considered what generosity looks like or whether I should give anything to God, to his church, whatever. And the Lord is asking you, Am I worthy of your trust? 
Okay, so depending on how you answer the first question, here's the second question. What would it look like for me to demonstrate to the Lord that I trust him? Wherever you find yourself, however God has spoken to you through this sermon, what would it look like for you if you do indeed trust in the Lord that he's worthy of your trust, what does it look like to demonstrate to him that you actually trust him? Right? In that crucible, in that circumstance, with those resources to say, okay, Lord, I want to take you at your word. You say put you to the test. I want to trust you. I want to demonstrate that I trust you. What would it look like to demonstrate to the Lord that I trust him? Okay, so I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen for you for just a minute. Uh, You can take a picture or write them down. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'll invite you to communion. Uh, This is where we remember the faithfulness of God, that he is worthy of our trust, because just as he promised, he sent Christ to live and die and rise again for us so that we could be forgiven of sin and uh, brought into the family of God. So you come to these tables. If you're a follower of Jesus, there are two two stations at each table that are identical. So there's uh, gluten-free wafers, and then there's uh, wine or juice. Uh, In the middle, there are still some of the rip and sips if you are a little cautious about touching the bread in the cup. Um, But uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just stay in your seats. But for those of you who are, welcome to these aisles and then uh, go to one of those stations, remembering the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus for you. Um, On your way back to your seats, uh, there are giving boxes if you want to give physically. If you have a connect card or a prayer request, you can drop those in the boxes as well. And then the band is going to come back up and lead us in a couple of uh, songs as we uh, close out our gathering. Let me pray for you, and then I'll invite you forward. Father, thank you for this time in your word and for these beautiful people. I pray that you, Lord, just um, that you have said something to your people today that is meaningful and helpful and corrective. We thank you so much for hard, good words like the book of Malachi. Uh, We need them. And so uh, thank you for the lessons that you are teaching us and the way that you are shaping and refining us through the scripture. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified now as we respond to you in repentance and in faith, in communion, in giving, in singing. Uh, Lord, and that you would meet us here by your spirit, that your presence would be thick among us as uh, as we sing these final songs, and that you'd give us joy in your presence here. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask your blessing over our response in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. So Lord leads you to respond. Please come forward.